Hello, welcome to episode 27 of the Rocky Mountain Mason podcast. I am Ben Williams, your host. Today, I'm pleased to relay a paper given at the College of SRICF in Denver several years back, titled On the Co-Evolution of Hermeticism and Christianity. And we will wrap up the episode with Chapter 9 of the Three Books of Occult Philosophy. If you like this content, you might enjoy subscribing to our magazine. You may do so at RockyMountainMason.com. We're also publishing a new magazine called The Esoteric Mason. In fact, the paper that I will be reading here is contained in that first issue. You may find out more information about that magazine at EsotericMason.com. You may also be interested to know that I have begun posting patrons-only material on our Patreon page. You can reach that page through RockyMountainMason.com. Beneath the support the show, there's a Patreon link that will take you to our Patreon page. There you will find deeper insights into some of the material that we have been presenting that may not be suitable for public distribution check it out. But now sit back and relax and enjoy on the co-evolution of Christianity and Hermeticism. The Co-Evolution of Christianity and Hermeticism for our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews 12, verse 29. It may seem odd in this time of post-industrial hegemony, where religion is both factious and yet monistic, where commentary has replaced discovery, where acceptance subsumes free thinking beneath hereditary habits and googled answers, that Christianity, as a religion, could somehow be other than the way it is now. Yet it is important to separate the teachings of the Christ, or of the followers of Christ, if you will, from the institutions of religious norms now standardized under his name. Christianity remains one of the most mystical religions. The elevation of an anthropomorphic Christos to a unity with the deity is, in many respects, a great teaching often misunderstood and all too readily misappropriated by both supporters and detractors of the church alike. This anthropomorphism of the sun is one of the principal reasons Jews denounce Christians as idolaters, and yet it is one of the tenets by which men of the church measure salvation. The measure of salvation, then, in any case, is the shape of a man. But the purpose of this paper is not epistemological. Rather, it is contextual. 
This paper will attempt to examine mutually reinforcing doctrine evident in early Christianity about 100 to 425 AD and hermeticism prevalent in the syncretic period, as we shall call it, in Alexandria, the Levant, and the Mediterranean during the formative years of the Christian faith. Thus, we will attempt to explore the thesis that proto-Christianity and Hermeticism were co-evolutionary, inspired perhaps by a common source, or at the very least inspired of each other as a result of a direct experience of deity findable revealed in the heart of man. In the unifying doctrine of Gnosis, wherein all men naturally cleave to the knowledge of God to become perfected in the form of the glory of the formless, the kavod, as Kabbalists call it, so to speak, Christianity appears to have arisen contradistinct the aged and co-opted religions of the day. By virtue of its origination under the processed sign of Pisces, Christianity arose as a unifying and corrective principle. We see this in Christ bringing a new teaching from a new priesthood, in ousting the money changes from the temple, and in rebuilding the temple in three days, among other examples throughout the New Testament. Indeed, truth remains. Only error changes in the passage of the ages. But, revealed distinct against the corrupted teachings of ages past, the form of truth, its vehicle, necessarily appears to change. It doesn't. Truth, in this sense, is universal, and error alone makes change. In the Gnostic sense, ignorance is change, a move to an understanding. Knowledge, in this sense, of the thing in and of itself, is a completion. Based on the revelation of Christ, Christianity, if we dare call it that for fear of stitching a new garment to conceal error under, is inherently a teaching of personal salvation brought about by comprehension of the Son. It is couched in experiential terms, not dogmatic exegesis. The Christ elevates the believer in union with God, signified by eternal life. Hermetic tractates likewise teach the revelation of, and union with, the immovable, uncreated, supreme truth that reigns above all, through, and within man. Take, for example, the following. In the, wor- in the, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You'll recognize that as John 1, verses 1 to 5. That was the New International Version's translation. Now, another one. The gospel of truth is joy for those who have received from the Father of truth the grace of knowing him from the power of the word that came forth from the pleroma. The one who is in the thought and mind of the Father, that is, the one who is addressed as the Savior, that being the name of the work he is to perform for the redemption of those who were ignorant of the Father, while in the name of the gospel is the proclamation of hope, being discovery of those who search for him. That was from the Gospel of Truth um, in the Nag Hammadi Library. 
And now, the mind, O Tat, is of God's very essence, if such a thing as essence of God there be. And what that is, it and it only knows precisely. The mind, then, is not separated off from God's essentiality, but is united to it, as light to sun. That was from the Corpus Hermeticum. The first quote is clearly recognizable, John 1. The next one may be less familiar to a wide audience, but is taken from the writings of Valentinius, um, an early 2nd century Christian patriarch denounced actually for heresy, and therefore perhaps earlier than or coexistence with, coexistent with John 1. Uh, note that the St. John's fragment of the Rylands Library Papyrus, which contains John 18 verses 31 through 33 and 37 through 38 is dated to between 117 to 138 AD, making it an early New Testament scripture. Now, the third quote, as I mentioned, is from the Corpus Hermeticum, taken from among many that include allusions to mind as the divine part made manifest in man, and make use of images of light as knowledge, revelation, gnosis, and completion, and further articulate the Logos, as vehicle for redemptive realization. Now, of course, the word in John 1, 1 through 5, the word word is Logos in Greek. In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God. Um, so these Christian, um, excuse me, these hermetic writings further articulate the Logos as vehicle for redemptive realization. While the above illustrates a theme of metaphor particular to the time, perhaps, and is of interest in common scope of analogy affecting like apprehension in the reader, it is not, nor can it be, definitive proof for our purposes here. Another contextual rendering of material of interest is found also among the 13 codices discovered at Nag Hammadi in 1945, but with material certainly more hermetic in execution. See, for example, the following. I have said, my son, that I am mind. I have seen. Language is not able to reveal this. For the entire eighth, my son, and the souls that are in it, and the angels sing a hymn in silence. And I, mind, understand. That was from the discourse of the eighth and ninth in the Nag Hammadi Library as well. The 13 codices found at Nag Hammadi in 1945 present an interesting collection and evidence, clearly, that Hermetic and Platonic writings were collated with Christian Apocrypha of the early 1st and 2nd centuries. Among the Gospels of Thomas, Mary, Philip, and other Christianist writings, as it were, we find fragments of Plato's Republic, the Discourse on the 8th and 9th, and the Hypostasis of the Archons. By virtue of this collation, then, we may presume, contextually at least, by virtue of grouping these disparate texts with common themes into a single savable codex, some syncretism of scholarship and theological discovery between them occurred for at least a particular audience in Egypt around the turn of the first century AD. That certain texts were excluded from inclusion in the New Testament at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD is readily understandable. The early church, seeking a centralized canon from which to adjudicate the faithful, stem pluralism to a common message across promulgators of church doctrine, and thus, by extension, limit heresy 
that is, the choice of faith, to a determined set of teachings generable as orthodoxy, was necessarily selective. Mystical, wordy, or rational texts, that is, texts devised to engender through a series of logical acquisitions of abstract principles, a personal comprehension of deity, and thus, by extension, attainment of gnosis, would be discarded in lieu of the narrative form more acceptable to the establishment of a temporal authority able to exert influence in the corporal domain. Valentinius, for example, once a contender for the seat of the Bishop of Rome, had already been denounced as a heretic, and Arianism, which threatened a popularity above the hypostasis of the Trinity, almost had become church doctrine. Arius of Alexandria's teachings were indeed a principal inspiration behind calling the First Council of Nicaea, which would denounce his teaching thereat in formal decree, while simultaneously acting to centralize doctrine into a commonly acceptable whole. The fact is that rational texts, as we have defined them, texts that rely on aphorisms and, shall we say, logic circuits for stimulating thought beyond the delimit enabled by words themselves, including dialogues, poems, and other abstract renderings often too heady for the multitude, would be obvious contenders for the cutting floor. Narrative, historical, and storied prose, on the other hand, provides an easier contextual frame for agreement. It is a lot easier to claim, and agree by reference among multiple texts, that Jesus of Nazareth began preaching at age 30, for example, than to define the concept of the Logos as the light to the light. Since historical narrative is dependent on supposed facts and occurrences over abstract reasoning, it is perhaps no wonder that Christologic texts like the Gospel of Truth, the Ogdoad and the Aeneid, and the Hypostasis of the Archons, were excluded from the New Testament. They were simply outside the contextual narrative favored for demonstrating the physical existence of an historical Jesus required in centralizing church canon. Yet that does not presuppose any lack of authenticity, or rather tamp the influence of these Christologic and Hermetic texts as existing, at least in Alexandria, actually before the Christian era. This is not to say that early Christiology was a result of the Hermetica. The Hermetica comprise a group of writings concerned with awakening the reader to a realized state of being. This, arguably, is the end of every religious tradition. And there are many such writings extant throughout the millennia that testify to this. For example, the Tao Te Ching of about 500 BC recognizably includes reasoning of the type familiar to the Hermeticists as well, as do the writings of the Platonists, such as Proclus and Plotinus of the same era. The Hermetica, by virtue of syncretism at a large crossroads of philosophical meanderings in time and space, just rendered a preferentially efficient form of these archetypal understandings and used language particularly suited to appropriation in support of the Christic mythos when taken in narrative form. The point here is that as religious traditions arise out of the never-ending turning of the ages, any revelation must, by virtue of transmission and by action of the baser natures in man, become slowly co-opted. Few sages actually commit their teachings to writing. It's the disciples who write it all down and then transmit the teaching already one step removed. 
With each successive transmission, through the ages, that which was revealed is slowly obscured, and the dance of the ages continues, that the great revelation can again occur, and God can come to be known in infinite ways. This is as it should be. A great secret lies hidden here, regarding the imminence of deity. I'll let you think about that. Now quoting Hebrews 7, 11 through 13. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. Thus, I argue, the revelation of the Christ bears that genuine understanding and wisdom accorded by union with the divine. Even if Christ were not the Son of God and co-eternal with the Father, as the hypostasis of the Trinity affirms, the revelation from union with God remains undeniable regardless. And, even at the most material and literal level, since Christ is considered human as well as divine, this union, through Christ, is a resurrection to God in the body. This precept is echoed throughout the Hermetica in literal form as well. See, for example, from the definitions of Hermes Trismegistus to Asclepius, wherever man is, also is God. God does not appear to anybody but man. Because of man, God changes and turns into the form of man. God is man-loving, and man is God-loving. There is an affinity between God and man. The question becomes whether or not this union is possible from a mere acceptance of Christ as Savior only, as modern Christians like to claim, or whether a union with God arises consummate the practicing of Christ's teachings and by following Christ himself. Christ's own teaching seems to touch on this question some, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Matthew seven twenty-two through 23 New International Version. The rebuke of the churches in Revelation, and Paul's letters likewise bear testimony against the establishment of a temporal power promulgating an exoteric teaching, however sincerely intended, that obscures the living God from the people. The entire world revolves on this conceit. It is indeed possible to know without knowing, and to see without seeing, and hear without hearing. Yet the mystic teachings of the Christ can be further seen at the Pentecost when the tongues of fire descended upon his apostles and they were opened. Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Ephesians 5, verse 14, also New International Version. The anthropomorphism of the Godhead into the Christ is further akin to the Platonic and Pythagorean teachings, heavy in the Hermetica, that allege man is the microcosm, in whom all things are made manifest. Now man is a small world because of soul and breath, and a perfect world whose magnitude does not exceed the sensible God, that is, the world. 
That's from the definitions of Hermes Trismegistus to Asclepius. And just as our soul, which is air, holds us together, so it is breath and air that encompass the whole world. Anaximenes, preserved by Stobius. Theories of Macrocosms and Microcosms in the History of Philosophy uh, by George Perigo, Conga, PhD. This holographic representation of reality, that the pieces are alike to the whole, and in fact the whole is contained within the piece, is featured in the teaching of the Christian patriarch, the Venerable Bede. We see it later in the Neoplatonist school, inspirational to our men, Marsilio Ficino, Da Vinci, Bruno, and Cardan, to name but a few. And of course, Pythagoras's famous string, strung to demonstrate the divine harmonies applicable to the revolution, the spheres themselves, readily springs to mind. In these subtleties, we find continuity and reinforcement of certain precepts common to all transmissions of the knowledge of God. Again, the Hermetica just couched this transmission in terms easily co-opted into the literalism required by a temporal establishment of Mother Church. Christianity, in both its esoteric and exoteric forms, thus necessarily includes a distillation of primary precepts, archetypal and definition of truth in the knowledge of God. The Hermetica, by offering non-denominational universal precepts determined, if you will, archetypically, readily lends itself for inclusion. The Hermetica are distinctly, to coin a term, unific, both in terms of unifying in comprehension and in uniting across religious differences. They are purely intellective, irrespective of anything else. Now, it is outside the scope of this particular paper, but precepts similar to those expressed in the Hermetica are frequently employed in Sufi and Buddhist writings and other mystical traditions as well. Thus, we can recognize truth common to all humanity. This is not subjective. It is an objective, all-resplendent truth, the truth of God. And it is found everywhere scattered throughout the millennia. In fact, in a very real sense, it is the only thing that remains through the ages. It is important to consider, too, in these explorations, a supposed source of the so-called synoptic gospels, that is Matthew and Luke versus the transmission of Mark. Some biblical scholars, through rote contextual analysis, have supposed a, a common source for Matthew and Luke, tailored against Mark, subsequent transmission across particular geographic boundaries into particular peoples, and thus into three synoptic gospels widely recognized today. The source was designated the so-called Q-source, from the German Quell, meaning source, long before the discoveries at Nag Hammadi, or at Qumran, where the appearance of the Gospel of Thomas a collection of aphoristic logia attributed to the living Jesus, seem to support this assertion. The Gospel of Thomas is now taken by some scholars to be the so-called Q source. It contains many renditions of, um, excuse me, it contains early renditions of many of Christ's most famous parables, as an example of the character of some of the logia recorded by Didymus Judas Thomas, we find at the very outset Rather, the kingdom is inside of you, 
and it is outside of you. When you come to know yourselves, then you will become known, and you will realize that it is you who are the sons of the living Father. But if you will not know yourselves, you dwell in poverty, and it is you who are that poverty. Now, I I don't have the benefit of any Coptic at all, um, but I would, from my own experience, prefer to translate poverty as wretchedness, but small difference. Now, there are many more examples throughout Thomas that demonstrate an expression of hermetic-like precepts further espoused by the fabled Hermes Trismegistus. What is interesting about the Gospel of Thomas is not just the collected sayings, which are like lightning strikes from the page, each letter but a veiled aperture through which much light is caused to shine, but the dialogue form in which the sayings are presented. This is, of course, not peculiar to the Hermetica or even to the Greek school, but it is frequently employed in recording the discourse of a forum where subtleties are explored and realization transcends the ability of language for those who have ears to hear. This form is common to rabbinical texts as well, particularly of note for our purposes here, although of a supposed later origination upon the page, the Sefer HaZohar and likely results from the rabbinical and Greek tradition of debate and discourse in exegesis. The use of a forum of discussion in revealing hidden understandings among participants should not be unfamiliar to my listeners today. But for our purposes here, it is interesting to consider that the Q source may have taken this form, absent the narrative historiological backdrop common to the other synoptic gospels. From the early texts discovered at Nag Hammadi, it does seem plausible that the Hermetica arose concurrent the affirmation of a new religion, a religion that would become known as Christianity, and then, ironically, would become so bound in the form of its own doctrine as to perhaps mistake the words for the silence the words were meant to reveal. So it is that men say nothing. The personal knowledge of God, through direct experience, through revelation, or dare I say it, theophany, is, in my opinion, the destiny of all humankind. The Hermetica points this out too, but differs from contemporary Christian teaching in that it does not promulgate a single day of judgment by which the entirety is brought to bear all at once at the same time. In the hermetic gnosis, the act of theophany itself is the day of judgment, and each individual small will reaches the theophany through judgment, that is, discrimination or the application of reason to reach beyond reason, wherein nous enters the soul, and the soul again sees, the vessel is emptied, the personality sloughed off as the culmination of many errors, and a new name then received. While Christianity is in this respect helical, the hermetica must remain circular. Thus the day of judgment is individually attained and surpassed when the incarnate man is ready. God reveals himself in man when man is ready to experience himself. Without union with God, the blind soul wreaks havoc, affected by desire and ambition, and continues the hypostasis of the archons, that is, the revolution and replication of error made for fulfillment of the ages. But this is eternity, 
the coming forth of the multitude, and is as it should be. The immortal nature is the movement of the mortal nature. As to mortality, earth is its grave, and heaven is the place of the immortal. The immortal came into being because of the mortal, but the mortal comes into being by means of the immortal. Evil is a deficiency of good. Good is a fullness of itself. From the definitions of Hermes Trismegistus to Asclepius. Now, this quote leads naturally to another teaching prevalent in the Hermetica and configured in Christianity, the concept of the fall. Also in the legend of Narcissus and in the Demiurge is described as Yazabaot in the Kabbalistic traditions. The difference, though, is that, hermetically speaking, the fall was a necessary blinding that enabled God to remain fundamentally illimitable. It was, to paraphrase Albert Pike, or Louis Constant, perhaps, the revealing that occurred whereby the revealing could be transformed. If God has any quality that can be ascribed, and of course it's silly to ascribe qualities to God, but nonetheless it is perhaps useful in discourse, but if God has any quality that can be ascribed beyond mercy, love, and the like, all of which are often a disservice to an understanding of deity, it must be illimitability. The Hermetica teaches that that which is already ever-present cannot go anywhere and is therefore limited in omnipresence. That which is already infinite has already been everything. It can become nothing. That which is infinite, then, must be infinitely similar in likeness. Even emptiness is united by its own non-entity. Thus, the illimitable is necessarily one. And, by definition and extension, that which is illimitably one must also be immovable. If God is omnipresent, where could he move to? This is what Plato means when he says the immovable supreme good. Thus, it is necessary for creation to spring into being. For God would be limited in rightness and presence. There is no place God cannot be unless a vessel be created into which God may be excluded. This exclusion is the result of man. And, therefore, in man, God can be discovered. This is the birth of man. This is the salvation of man. This discovery is the theophany. It could be called the I am moment, because this discovery is the same discerning of God and the cause of causes that enabled the creation to begin with. It is the omega to the alpha, and it is the end of days, which is, as a matter of fact, the beginning of knowing, and thus also the first day. This, my friends, is the Ouroboros, alas, a much overused symbol among enthusiastic members of our craft today. Much more could be said on this topic of the fall of man and I look forward to perhaps presenting another paper for your attention, specifically to this point, in due course. Until then, however, since time is short, and I have written this hurriedly amidst the mailstrom of mundane affairs with innumerable deadlines, 
I will leave you with the following quote from Dr. Gillis Quispel, professor of early Christianity at Harvard and Utrecht universities for your own contemplation. In 1614, the Swiss Calvinist from Geneva, Casabon, proved that the Corpus Hermeticum was not as old as it pretended to be, but should be dated after the beginning of the Christian era. After this, Hermetic writings lost their general fascination, but lived on in secret societies such as the Freemasons and the Rosicrucians. The discovery of Hermetic writings in one of the 13 codices found near Nag Hammadi in Egypt in 1945 changed this situation completely. They contained a better version in Coptic of parts of the Hermetic Asclepius, preserved in Latin among the works of Apuleius, and, moreover, the integral text of an unknown writing called On the Ogdoad and the Ennead. This work shows, without any doubt, that the Hermetic believer was initiated into several grades before transcending the sphere of the seven planets and the heaven of the fixed stars, the Ogdoad. There, he would behold the God beyond and experience himself with a capital H. It is now completely certain. I'm going to repeat that. It is now completely certain that there existed before and after the beginning of the Christian era in Alexandria, a secret society akin to a Masonic lodge. The members of this group called themselves brethren, were initiated through a baptism of the Spirit, greeted each other with a sacred kiss, celebrated a sacred meal, and read the Hermetic writings as edifying treatises for their spiritual progress. That was Dr. Gillis Quispel, Professor Emeritus, Utrecht and Harvard Universities, from his preface preface in The Way of Hermes, uh, the New Translations of the Corpus Hermeticum and the Definitions of Hermes Trismegistus to Asclepius, published by Inner Traditions, and uh, a principal translator of those discovered texts at Nag Hammadi and in Qumran. Interesting, indeed. Now, a few episodes ago, I had mentioned when discussing examples of the properties of this element, air, which I hope you have realized has become a bit of a theme presently in some of these podcasts, perhaps behind the, you know, the foreground in the background there, there is a theme about the element air that I hope you are uh, noticing. Um, But I said that I would look into that battle I had mentioned Uh, where there have been ghostly sightings and reenactments of this battle. Um, There's actually two that come to note. And perhaps the more famous is the Battle of Edge Hill. This was, I think it was 1642, uh, the very first battle of the Civil War in England between the Royalists for Charles I and the Parliamentarians under Cromwell. And this battle 
happened uh, actually in late October. I think it was October 23rd. Uh, don't quote me on that. Um, but nonetheless, it happened in late October. It um, was a fairly short and bloody affair. Many people died suffering on the floor. Of course, gunpowder was being used. People were maimed and the corpses were robbed. And the the dead were just left where they laid. Um, it was considered kind of a draw. Nobody really won this battle. But a few months later, as Christmas approached, many people in a nearby town of Kinnerton heard and saw the battle reappearing right there on the ground. It created such a stir um, that a priest and some shepherds had testified to it already um, that the king, getting word of this in London, sent a commission, a royal commission to investigate, which they did. And they themselves claimed to have witnessed the battle and actually been able to recognize one of the apparitions as the standard bearer, a nobleman who had had his hand hacked off in not giving up the stand, the royal standard, which was recovered by the royalists at some point. Legend has it with the, uh, the hand of the standard bearer still grasping strongly to the shaft. Now, whether or not this is simple royal propaganda, we, we, we can't say, um, but it remains the only certified royal kind of exploration and admission of a supernatural phenomenon, and certainly of this caliber, um, in the United Kingdom. Now, look it up, the Battle of Edge Hill. I think you'll find it interesting. A second one also comes to note, and this was actually the one that I was thinking of, um, also in the British Midlands, is the Battle of Naseby. This was another uh, battle in the English Civil War, 1645 this time. And unfortunately, it represented the end of, I shouldn't say unfortunately, unfortunately for the king, um, it, he, it was the end kind of, of uh, the royalists' position. Um, they were unceremoniously defeated, and in short order thereafter, you know, Charles would be beheaded. Now, what is interesting about the Battle of Naseby is it was witnessed also by numerous people being repeated miraculously in the sky. And there were for tens of years, allegedly on the date of the battle, the town of Naseby, it is said, would go out and literally watch the battle again, playing out in the sky. Again, check it out. This is on the record. I think you might find it of interest. I don't know what to think about it. I used to live nearby these places. I never saw anything like it. But I tell you what, on the on the date of these battles, the anniversaries, I will intend to go one day in the future and uh, keep an ear open. Who knows? Well, don't go away. We'll be right back with the three books of occult philosophy. Chapter 9 by Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa von Nettesheim. Thanks for listening. Chapter 9 Of the Virtues of Things Natural, Depending Immediately Upon Elements Of the natural virtues of things, some are elementary, as to heat, to cool, to moisten, to dry, and they are called operations or first qualities, and the second act, 
for these qualities only do wholly change the whole substance, which none of the other qualities can do. And some are in things compounded of elements, and these are more than first qualities, and such are those that are maturating, digesting, resolving, mollifying, hardening, restringing, abstirging, corroding, burning, opening, evaporating, strengthening, mitigating, conglutinating, obstructing, expelling, retaining, attracting, repercussing, stupefying, bestowing, lubrifying, and many more. Elementary qualities do many things in a mixed body, which they cannot do in the elements themselves. And these operations are called secondary qualities, because they follow the nature and proportion of the mixture of the first virtues, as largely it is treated of in physic books. As maturation, which is the operation of natural heat, according to a certain proportion in the substance of the matter. Induration is the operation of cold, so also is congelation, and so of the rest. And these operations sometimes act upon a certain member, as such which provoke urine, milk, the menstrua, and they are called third qualities, which follow the second, as the second do the first. According, therefore, to these first, second, and third qualities, many diseases are both cured and caused. Many things also there are artificially made, which men much wonder at, as is fire which burns water, which they call the Greek fire, of which Aristotle teacheth many compositions in his particular treatise of this subject. In like manner there is made a fire that is extinguished with oil, and is kindled with cold water when it is sprinkled upon it, and a fire which is kindled either with rain, wind, or the sun. And there is made a fire which is called burning water, the confection whereof is well known, and it consumes nothing but itself. And also there are made fires that cannot be quenched, and incombustible oils and perpetual lamps, which can be extinguished neither with wind, nor water, nor any other way, which seems utterly incredible, but that there had been such a most famous lamp which once did shine in the temple of Venus, in which the stone asbestos did burn, which being once fired can never be extinguished. Also, on the contrary, wood or any other combustible matter may be so ordered that it can receive no harm from the fire, and there are made certain confections with the hands being anointed, we may carry red-hot iron in them, or put them in melted metal, or go with our whole bodies, being first anointed therewith, into the fire without any manner of harm, and such like things as these may be done. There is also a kind of flax, which Pliny calls abistum, the Greeks abekason, which is not consumed by fire, of which Anaxilius saith that a tree compassed about with it may be cut down with insensible blows that cannot be heard. Now, you may already be aware that in the Hebrew Aramaic version of the Bible in Genesis, when God formed the heavens and the earth, the word heavens is shameim, shin, mem, yod, memsefit, shameim, literally fire waters. 
If you recall from the end of a previous podcast, then if you have become a patron and have listened to On the Kabbalah of the Air, you will recall that, of course, fire and water are two elements that emerge from the air, the one being the heat and the other being the wetness, which combined form air. Remove the heat, you get water. Remove the wetness, you get fire. Shamayim comes from air, even as Ein Sof, or comes from the Ein. Well, that's it. Thank you for listening this far. If you've enjoyed this show, please consider becoming a patron. You may do so by visiting our website at rockingmountainmason.com. Just click on the Patreon link. You can become a patron for as little as $5 a month if you're feeling generous And until next time, take care and Godspeed.